It's Tuesday, August 10th, and you've got Oz in your ears. I'm here on the shore of the Gulf Coast for Radio Free Oz, talking with Charles Dunder, the latest member of Obama's Gang of Five sent down here to solve the oil spill crisis. Uh, you've just arrived, haven't you, Charles? Yes, I replaced Professor Katz, uh, you know, the astrophysicist, when it was revealed that he was a virulent homophobe and a climate change denier. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. So, but so w- what do you add to the team? Then? Well, I run the Petro Nutritional Institute back at Solid State University. I'm down here investigating a sustainable solution to the well, the massive loss of fish and shellfish that's going on right here at our feet as we speak. A uh, petro-nutrition. I'm not familiar with that field. Oh, well, it's relatively new. You know, it didn't take off until we got the whole petrophilic nano-cloning process down. Excuse me? Well, sorry, uh, Mr. Oz. Simply put, given the right starter genes chain-ganged polymers and robust steroids, we can create a host of creatures that not only survive in oil-saturated water, but, well, they really thrive on it. Oh, is, uh, is that one of them, that thing you're holding in your hand? Looks, looks vaguely like a shrimp. Yes, yes, exactly. We call it the slick shrimp, and, and yes, it does thrive in oil-polluted wetlands just like these. Uh, now, you throw a million slick shrimp scats <laughs> the little fellas are called when they come out of the test tube, no bigger than a puppy seed. <laughs> and a month later, well, they're as big as, as Buster Hare, <laughs> ready to be flavored and sent off to market. You want to try one? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a little chewy. Oh, that's the that's the polymer filling. How does it taste? Uh, tastes like pork. Yeah, yeah. Pork flavored slick shrimp. One of my one of my favorites. It's a uh, it's Pan Asian. You know. let, let let me have it back. Oh, oh yeah, okay. Oh, now you see. Watch this. I I just dip it in the degreaser and watch as it springs back to life. You could rub a little of this on it. All right, here you are again. Now give it a try. Mmm. Now that tastes like jumbo bayou stampy, the real thing. Oh well, they're all the real thing. <laughs> well, <clears throat> and that should. Go over real good with the green crowd. I mean, you can re-eat them up to a dozen times, we believe, before the steroid skeleton breaks down. And <laughs> well, they just turn to mush. It's a reasonable short-term solution, Charles, but I, I can't wait for the real shrimp to return. Oh, 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 return? Well, Uncle Pete, that hole in the ocean floor is spewing some two hundred thousand gallons of oil a day. Your great grandchildren will be waiting for these little shrimp to return. Now, so, now let's get real. I've got this oil-happy catfish here. You only have to put a match to it, like this. Ooh! (laughs) See? He's sautéed and ready to serve. (laughs) This is Peter Bergman for Radio Free Oz in the Gulf, and I want to go home. (laughs) You can never go home. Ho, 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 Radio Free Oz. Up on the brand new RadioFreeOz.com website. You may not notice a difference, but you'll find that it's sophisticated and it's deep now. And it's got many skins and all those things. We'll be talking a lot about that anon. But right now, me, your host, uh, Peter Bergman, and my co-host, David Osmond, would like to welcome to the studio the man that brings us local trouble every week, uh, Luther well, hello there, Mr. Bergman. You know, I've been on vacation for a little time, so I've uh, missed a few of the of the occurrences here on the sheriff's calendar. Well, but bring us up to date, well, Luth. Uh, on Thursday at 3.35, 3.35 p.m. in your afternoon, a large brown cow was reportedly galloping in the roadway southbound on Smuggler's Cove Road. So there you are. There you are. I mean, I can't explain it, but there you have it. Okay? Well, it's not far from where I live. You know, those cows do get out. They do. And they, when they and do, they, they gallop, I They understand. gallop, well, what else? I mean, they're so happy. Cow. So happy. <laughs> Probably going to town for, you know, down to Southern Cross for a, for a cup of java or something like that. On the next day, on Friday, yeah. we at 9.35 in the morning, a woman on Bayview Road recalled, uh, she recalled this. I mean, she just was in a memory zone, you understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, recalled smelling distinct cigarette smoke the night before and said she smelled the same thing a few weeks ago when a burglary, a burglary occurred at a neighbor's house. 
Smoke. Where there's smoke, there's burglars. I guess that's what she got in mind. Well, well that, that's that kind of that local thinking that keeps things safe. Well, I got another funny smell one coming up here in just a minute. But at uh, that same day on Friday, 324, a group of three men were seen drinking and urinating near a parked pickup truck on Crawl Road. <laughs> now, you think that's pretty good, but there was a sign nearby that said it was a private party. Oh, my. Well, so is, I should is, think so. Is this a private party? Could anybody piss here, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> it's a strange world out there. Well, Getting a little stranger. later on, a little yeah. later on, 7 o'clock p.m., 7.06, a woman who was being evicted said she was upset at her landlady for coming into her house and moving things around. She also overfed her cat. That'll happen. Uh, now that you want to call the sheriff if somebody feeds your cat too much food, I tell you that we got nothing to do down there but just sit around to take cat complaints. Okay, nine thirty nine is a busy day for us. Nine thirty nine p.m. A, a, a caller on uh, said a neighbor on Chipshot Way was using a wood chipper. Wait a minute, Chip. I know where Chipshot is. Yeah, right? that's that's part that's of right that's part of the golf course. That's, that's right part of the there. failed golf course. Yeah, nine thirty nine is using a wood chipper. No. Yeah, I mean this is a big deal there on Chipshot. <laughs> Hey, my neighbor's chipping. What the hell? I, I don't know. Well, on Saturday, and this is just going to finish this up for you, Mr. Bergman, because it's good. just too stupid for words out there. A caller on Haven Way reported smelling a funny odor and seeing gray smoke. Well, maybe it was them burglars just hanging out having I a private it was. Piss. There you go. Yeah. It's the Hannah runs a private party, everybody. Okay, that's all I got for you today, Mr. Bergman. So long. It's enough. It's enough. This is from The Gray Lady, and it's written by David Stockman, who is, uh, he was the director of Office of Management and Budget under Reagan, and he's writing a book about the uh, the financial crisis that we are suffering. Stockman was the guy that was taken to the woodshed by the Reagan administration when he had the, the balls to stand up and tell the truth about trickle-down economics. So here he is. He no fool. If there were such a thing as Chapter 11 for politicians, the Republican push to extend the unaffordable Bush tax cuts would amount to a bankruptcy filing. Now, this is being written by a definite mainstream Republican. The nation's public debt, if honestly reckoned to include municipal bonds and the $7 trillion of new deficits baked into the cake through 2015, will soon reach $18 trillion. That's a grease scale 120% of gross domestic product and fairly screams out for austerity and sacrifice. It is therefore unseemly for the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell to insist that the nation's wealthiest taxpayers be spared even a 3 percentage point rate increase. Excuse me, David, you're right. It's not the time to give those plutocrats a break. But the fact is, is that we are $18 trillion in debt because we are running a useless criminal empire. Why won't anybody talk about the military? This is all very smart and well, and I'm going to read read the rest, and there's cogency throughout it. But he is not dealing with a fully armed, camouflaged, $10,000 a second gorilla standing in the room. More fundamentally, says Mr. Stockman, Mr. McConnell's stand puts the lie to the Republican pretense that its new monetarist and supply-side doctrines are rooted in its traditional financial philosophy. Republicans used to believe that prosperity depended upon the regular balancing of accounts in government, in international trade, on the ledgers of central banks, and in the financial affairs of private households and businesses, too. By the way, they weren't the only one that thought about that. This is a country that has been balancing its books for ever so long. But the new catechism, as practiced by Republican policymakers for decades now, has amounted to little more than money printing and deficit finance. Vulgar Keynesianism, robed in the ideological vestments of the prosperous classes. I.e., we're being ripped off by the rich. This approach has not simply made a mockery of traditional party ideals. It has also led to the serial financial bubbles and Wall Street depredations that have crippled our economy and put us basically in a state of deep financial woe. It started, he said, when the Nixon administration defaulted the American obligations under the 1944 Bretton Woods Agreement to balance our accounts with the world. Now, since we have lived beyond our means as a nation for nearly 40 years, our cumulative current account deficit, the combined shortfall on our trade in goods, services, and income, has reached nearly $8 trillion. That's borrowed prosperity on an epic scale. That's what we have been doing. 
But it's not just borrowing the prosperity that we have been living with as a taken-for-granted lifestyle for, what, four or five decades. We're not borrowing it. We're ripping it off from everybody else because we have no intent of paying it back. And if we do, we'll do it with a thoroughly devaluated dollar. It is also an outcome that Milton Friedman, now remember, Milton Friedman got a Nobel Prize for this. This is an outcome that Nobel Prize winner Milton Friedman said would never happen when in 1971 he persuaded President Nixon to unleash on the world paper dollars no longer redeemable in gold or other fixed monetary reserves. Just let the free market set currency exchange rates, he said, and the trade deficits will self-correct. Milton, Bubby, you're a schmageggy. It may be true that governments, because they intervene in foreign exchange markets, have never completely allowed their currencies to float freely, but that does not absolve Friedman's $8 trillion error. Once relieved of the discipline of defending a fixed value for their currencies, politicians the world over were free to cheapen their money and disregard their neighbors. But we were the lead culprit. Remember, with money backed by nothing but pictures of dead presidents— we have consumed 25% of the world's resources, representing 5% of its population. So Stockman says, the second unhappy change in the American economy has been the extraordinary growth of our public debt. In 1970, it was just 40% of GDP, or about $425 billion. When it reaches $18 trillion, it will be 40 times greater than in 1970. This debt explosion has resulted not from big spending by the Democrats, but instead the Republican Party's embrace about three decades ago of the insidious doctrine that deficits don't matter if they result from tax cuts. And that's just what Mitch McConnell and the rest of his brotherhood are pushing on us right now. What's interesting is that they say, well, it's okay if there's a deficit, if there's a tax cut, because somebody, i.e. the people that pay for their propaganda, get to put it in their pockets. But try to raise a bill, which they're trying to right now and unfortunately not being able to succeed with, a bill to save policemen's jobs and teachers' jobs and, and help small businesses. Oh, no, that builds the deficit, so the GOP basically puts a knife across its neck. The third ominous change in the American economy, according to Stockman, has been the vast, unproductive expansion of our financial sector. Listen to that. Not only vast, but unproductive. These people are making billions of dollars just ripping us off and shifting money around from one pocket to the other. They are producing nothing. These people should be sent to the cornfields of Iowa and forced to grow crops, forced to have a blister on anything but their ass from sitting and watching Fox Financial News and Bloomberg. So this vast, unproductive expansion of our financial sector. Here, Republicans have been oblivious to the grave danger of flooding financial markets with freely printed money and at the same time removing traditional restrictions on leverage and speculation. They love leverage and speculation. It puts money in their pockets. As a result, the combined assets of conventional banks and the so-called shadow banking system, including investment banks and finance companies, grew from a mere $500 billion in 1970 to $30 trillion by September 2008. Uh-huh. And then came the bursting of the bubble. Yeah, life's a carnival, Dave. And in Rosetta, uh, Pennsylvania, a carnival company closed down a shooter game called Alien Attack after complaints and news stories that President Obama was one of the targets. Oh, Oh, alien, that kind of alien attack. It wasn't just the little green guys, huh? No, The the black alien leader is holding a (laughs) scroll titled Health Bill and wearing a presidential seal belt buckle. He also has antennae and a troll doll with a Kiss t-shirt on his shoulder. (laughs) I like that. The world gets better, Dave. Yeah, yeah. The owner of the carnival company, Good Time Amusements, dismissed a complaint saying the figure is not meant to be Obama. Uh Health bill, president, you know, okay. Well, the gnome is a bit tricky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She, a carnival goer, said she was offended by it. I said, if you are, you might want to be. But you're interpreting it as as being uh, what it what it is as Obama, but it's not. After drawing more attention from the press, however, Good shut down the game and apologized. I don't think it was offensive, and you know I made the wrong judgment on it. He said, and that's all I can say about it. We did away with it, and I'm apologizing to everybody in the world. I think. <laughs> 
Oh, gee. Well, this is a kind of a typical right-wing thing. Huh? You put the stuff out there and you make fun of the president or whoever you're making fun of. And then you say, oh, gee, I'm really terribly sorry it wasn't Obama. We didn't intend to offend anybody. Well, well they know, yeah, I'm sorry if it I'm offended sorry. you is one of my favorite, right? The yeah. Holocaust. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sorry, sorry if, if it, it offended you. you. Yeah. Well, to me, the the best things that have happened, the best statements that have happened recently yeah. uh, are, are from the judge's decision on gay marriage. Okay? Yeah. And I think this is just it just works into every story that we come up with. Oh. Yeah, when 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 he says here, here's the two things that I that I really like, moral disapproval alone is an improper basis on which to deny rights. That's right. Now that is a worldwide sentiment. Let's carry that democratic American principle around the world. Put that on my T-shirt. There right? you go. There and and, and, uh, and the other one was uh, um, uh, fundamental rights may not be submitted to a vote. That's true. Fundamental rights may not be said. Let's export that ideal of American democracy. I suppose one of the functions of Radio Free Oz is to do for the Afghan occupation slash war what television did for the Vietnam War. Remember, it was the Vietnam War on television that finally turned people around. Well, you can't see the Afghan occupation on television because... They figured out that if people can see what's going on, <laughs> they might take umbrage. So I'm using Oz, and I encourage everybody else who has any means whatsoever uh, to communicate, whether it's Twitter or text or Facebook or whatever, or actually just talking to your friends and neighbors. Let them know what's going on. Yeah, we got we to gotta, we gotta pull out of there. We got to turn this thing around. In a summer of suffering, according to Talking Points Memo, America's military death toll in Afghanistan is rising with back-to-back -back record months for U.S. losses in this grinding conflict. All signs point to more bloodshed in the months ahead, straining the already shaky international support for the war. Oh, it's shaky. We'll get into that. Six more Americans were reported killed in fighting in the South, pushing the U.S. death toll for July to a record 66 and surpassing June as the deadliest month for U.S. forces in the nearly nine-year war. Five of the latest reported deaths were a result of hidden bombs, the insurgents' weapons of choice, and the sixth to an armed attack, NATO said uh, recently in a report. U.S. commanders say American casualties are mounting because more troops are fighting. Yeah, this is because Obama didn't listen to Carl Eikenberry, who said, don't send him in. It's just more death and more dependence of the Karzai government upon us. It's a bad, bad idea. So there's more people there, more people fighting, more people dying. And also because the Taliban are stiffening resistance as NATO and Afghan forces challenge the insurgents in areas they can't afford to give up without a fight. Recent months in Afghanistan have seen tough fighting and tough casualties. This was expected, the top U.S. and NATO Commander General David Petraeus said at his Senate confirmation hearing last month. He's not being shot at when he's sitting there talking to the senators. Well, this is to be expected? Will Petraeus betray us? Hard to tell. My sense, he says, is that the tough fighting will continue. Indeed, it may get more intense in the next few months. What a brain. What, 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 a, what a military genius. It's bad and it's going to get worse. That forecast is proving grimly accurate. The month has brought a sharp increase in the tragic images of war. Medics frantically seeking to stop the bleeding of a soldier who lost his leg in a bombing. Fearful comrades huddled around a wounded soldier fighting for his life. The solemn scenes at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware where shattered relatives come to receive the bodies of their loved ones. At least they can go to Delaware now. Under George W. Bush, you couldn't see the battered bodies, right? Don't see the bodies. Hey, it's like you don't see the oil. The spill's over. After a dip in American deaths last spring following the February capture of the southern town of Marja, some U.S. military officers speculated that the spring drop in fatalities was due in part to the fact that many Taliban fighters, what, had given up, right, had decided they just can't do it? No, they were busy harvesting the annual opium poppy crop, a major source of funding for the insurgents. This is the crop we were supposed to be eradicating amongst other positive nation-building efforts there in Afghanistan. Instead, it is paying for the very people that are killing us. As the harvest ended and the pace of battle accelerated, more American troops were streaming into the country as part of President Barack Obama's decision last December to dispatch 30,000 reinforcements in a bid to turn back a resurgent Taliban. 
American troop strength stands at about 95,000, and by the end of August, the figure is expected to swell to 100,000 troops, three times the number in early 2009. I hate to say it, uh, you know, it's Obama's war. The rise in casualties is likely to erode support for the war in Washington and the capabilities of the 45 other countries that provide troops, especially if NATO commanders are unable to show progress in curbing the Taliban. Now get this. The Dutch are due to remove the last of their 1,600-member force at the end of this month, and Canada plans to remove its 2,700 troops next year. The coalition of the willing is spilling. And also there are signs that Afghan patience with the presence of thousands of foreign troops is running thin. In Kabul, police fired weapons into the air recently to disperse a crowd of angry Afghans who shouted, Death to America! Hurled stones and set fire to two vehicles after an SUV driven by U.S. contract employees, they're a rum lot, was involved in a traffic accident that killed four Afghans. The contractor, DynCorp, D-Y-N-C-O-R-P International, confirmed that its employees working on a program sponsored by the U.S. Department of State were involved in an accident on the main road to the Kabul airport. In a statement, DynCorp said that when its employees got out of their vehicle, they and other DynCorp employees who arrived at the scene to help were attacked by the crowd, which burned their vehicles. They sure love them Americans. Ahmed Jaweed, who was also at the scene, asked, Are we not Muslims? Are we not from Afghanistan? Infidels are here and they are ruling us. Why? I wish I had a good answer. Well, here's good news. My old buddy, my old brother, Phil Proctor, is sitting across from me here in the co-host chair. What brings you to Whidbey Island, my man? Uh, it was an airplane. That, yeah. And then a ferry. Yeah. And then a rented car basically well, brought me here to the Blue U. Mm-hmm. It's funny it's called the Blue U because really when you drive to this studio, you pass alpaca farms. So why isn't it called like, you know, the polka dot alpaca or something? Like because that? we were here before the Packies. Yeah, the yeah, Us? Yeah, yeah. The Us U- was here before the Packies? Was, and the Packies, by the way, you know, they're a camel. They're camel family. Yeah, Gamel. Yeah, yes. if you take a look at them, if you run, if you, when we drive they by. They took I, a look at us. I always yell, hey, Packy, and they all jump you know, up. They all look at you. Oh, they do. Their little ears go up, and they say, like, who, who, that? Well, they, it's a family that put them together from, a, it's an IBM fortune, and she spends most of her time weaving with the wool uh-huh. or scooping up the shit. Well, that's, that's but you it. have to be into BM if you're going to raise any animals. But particularly basically. alpacas. Alpacas, because they can, they pack it in, and they, and they pack, pack it, it out. out. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. yeah. So what are you doing up here, Okay, Phil? I'm actually. Uh, performing in a play, uh, an adaptation of uh, BBC Murder Mysteries written by uh, Agatha Christie that Dave Osman and Judith uh, Walcott are producing and directing and putting on at the Whitby Children's Theater. And you opened last night. We did. I did. And I'm opening now to you to tell you all about it. <clears throat> but yes, we, we had a kind of a preview opening, a kind of a tech preview open see everything's kind of you know faster here yeah it's slow on the island but the work is faster well, because you have to do more in less time the day before when during your so-called dress rehearsal sharon and i yeah. came over to oh you uh, did to, to maybe say hello and i got within sight of the door and i could smell the work that yeah. was going oh, on oh yeah no. and i went no. No, no 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 we we do not belong here because That's we right. don't want to be working here right yeah. now no They're, civilians allowed oh no i saw the actors yeah. there were a bunch of the kids there waiting and they were slightly bedraggled on this head yeah. i've seen that look i know this yeah scent. exactly let's go That's right yeah so we'll no. get you tonight though we'll get you yeah tonight well we had a wonderful opening last night absolutely wonderful and the audience just just loved it and uh, there's live music you know there's a live band on stage there's a lot to coordinate there's slides now behind my wife as agatha christie yep. as she tells the stories of the each one of these little the gestation of each one of these little radio plays that she wrote for the bbc from like 1935 to 1955 and uh, and there are uh, this kind of rotating set pieces that they're using it's all beautifully costumed. And it's a tiny theater. I mean, it's only a 99-seater. Yeah. They've created a big space and a small space. Yes, they have. Uh, but, but you know, as Fireside Theater, we're used to doing that kind of thing, too. Yes, and as Procter & Bergman, when oh. we were touring, you know, the Emirates, we we uh, we would we'd work on a postage stamp and make it into a coliseum. Yeah, well, they used to send us, I mean, who, planes, they used to send us on a postage stamp. We played, remember the stage we played in Quinnipiac where there was a huge hole in the middle of the stage oh, where they'd yeah, been doing right. something like Moby Dick, and that's where the <laughs> Mast went, That's and we right. had to keep from falling, <laughs> falling in. into the hole. Although it would have been a good bit, you yeah. know, but or just a, good, 
a break. one time. Yeah, just a one good. That would have been our big break. Well, yeah. remember, and in Toronto, we we've played some really fine places. Oh, we Phil. played the one we, where we had to run to the back of the stage to switch the lights on and off oh, ourselves. Oh, I forgot about that one. I do remember changing in the uh, whiskey uh, storage room, which was a, a vault yeah. in Tennessee. In in um, um, exit in the exit where they in? shot Nashville. Yeah, yeah, we, we that's were right. in the back. That's but right. my, but uh, my favorite though, I think, is when we came. It was in um, Normal, Illinois, and we came out on the stage, and it wasn't a stage. Well, it was it was planks of wood inside a big parachute. Yes, dome, a big parachute. and the lights. Yeah. Where somebody turned a truck on. Us, yeah, it was like a Jeep us. lights yeah. with, with our lights. Yes, that was. Well, we, we, you know, we've been there and we've done that. Well, remember when we opened for the Psychedelic Furs down in, in Gainesville, and they were throwing oh, whiskey bottles at us, and yes. we had to have the guards stand in front of us. Yes, yeah. that was right before actually the Gangland shooting, uh, uh, the um, uh, Golden, Golden Dragon, Dragon Massacre, Massacre was two- right before that. Because yeah. I'd been told by my psychic friend, Sharon, that uh, we were going to be involved in a gangland shooting. She told you that? Oh, yeah, I've told you this Well, story you didn't before. pass that on to me, oh, yeah. son. Only oh, after yeah. the no, fact. After the fact, I, I told you. Yeah, five dead, 12 wounded. There yeah. we are in the midst of ankle-high blood, and I you didn't, didn't even tell let you me because know. she said we would be okay. Well, we are okay. She said people would be killed and wounded around you. In fact, uh, 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 Dr. Bill, who brought us into the place, was wounded. Yeah. Still carries a, a machine gun slug behind his knee. That's right. It's a souvenir. He didn't want to give it up, right? You know. On the road. On the road. Yes, adventures on the road. Time 
It wasn't long ago when pure heartlessness in the GOP was considered outré. Not anymore. Say back in February, one unpredictable Senator Jim Bunning. That's what happens when you let a baseball player become your senator? When Jim Bunning single-handedly stalled extensions on unemployment benefits for several days, his Republican colleagues quickly abandoned him, worried that the GOP would be cast as the party against helping people who were out of work. Yeah, well, guess what? Now they are. Last month, as jobless benefits were again set to expire, Bunning still objected to funding them in a way that would increase the deficit. By this time, nearly enough Republicans in the Senate joined him, leading to a month-long impasse in which more than 2 million people briefly lost their benefits. Bunning didn't lose his benefits. He's losing his reputation. He may be endangering his holy soul, but he didn't lose any benefits. When the extension finally passed last week, only two Republicans backed the $34 billion unemployment measure compared with 21 who had voted with Democrats in March. And what made them change their mind? Was it this big bugaboo called the deficit? Well, why don't they really do something about it? It's not the 2 million unemployed who are going to get $260 a week that are causing the problems. It's that B-1 you just built. It's that aircraft carrier you don't bloody need. It's that part of the world you don't need to occupy for no good reason. That's what the deficit is all about. The barrage of no votes from the GOP has not abated. Emboldened by sagging approval ratings of the Democratic-controlled Congress, Republicans almost unanimously opposed a bill to overhaul the financial regulatory system that President Obama signed into law. They are against a measure to increase the disclosure of campaign spending by corporations, and they're largely uh, eliminated the chance of passing a series of measures Democrats say could help the economy. They have indeed, according to the latest report from, from Harry Reid, they have indeed succeeded in stopping the bills to save the teachers and small businesses businesses, and the cops. Thank you, GOP, for nothing. Republicans say polls suggest that they can oppose all these initiatives by casting them into a broader critique of Democrats increasing the size of government and the budget deficit, even if their bills are individually popular with the public. We're very comfortable uh, where we're at. We have very few members who feel endangered, said Representative Tom Cole, an idiot from Oklahoma, and a veteran Republican, and a and a deputy whip in the house. He should be taken outside and deputy whipped within an inch of his stupid life. We feel like we are reflecting a broader mood of dissatisfaction. Right now, the American people want us saying no. Mm -mm -mm. That's not true. No, that's not true at all. And again, I predict, and you can hold me to this, these people are going to be pummeled in November. Believe me, it's not going to take forever for the American people to figure out that these people are standing in the way of people's sanity and well-being, not only on a principle, but this hungry desire to take over the Congress. The opposition has left the Democrats fuming. They say Republicans complain that Congress should focus more on the economy, but oppose every measure Democrats take up to create jobs. In the Democratic view, the GOP is cynically blocking measures to reduce unemployment so they can ensure an angry electorate this fall who will want to vote out incumbents, most of them who are Democrats. Well, let me tell you, if that's what you do, if that's where you place your anger, if that's how much critical thinking you have put aside, if that's the best that you can come up with, then you bloody well deserve it. I like it when people write really smart articles. This is from Dahlia Lithwick in the Daily Beast. And it's all about this major decision by Judge Vaughn Walker to overturn Proposition 8, the anti-gay marriage amendment in the state of bankrupt. 
California. She says, Judge Vaughn Walker is not Anthony Kennedy, but when the chips are down, he certainly knows how to write like him. I count, in his opinion today, seven citations to Justice Kennedy's 1996 opinion in Romer versus Evans, striking down an anti-gay Colorado ballot initiative, and eight citations to his 2003 decision in Lawrence versus Texas, striking down Texas's gay sodomy law. In a stunning decision, finding California's Proposition 8 ballot initiative banning gay marriage unconstitutional, Walker trod heavily on the path Kennedy had blazed on gay rights. It would, I quote, it would demean a married couple were it to be said marriage is simply about the right to have sexual intercourse, quotes Walker. Moral disapproval without any other asserted state interest has never been a rational basis for legislation, cites Walker. Animus towards gays and lesbians or simply a belief that a relationship between a man and a woman is inherently better than a relationship between two men or two women. This belief is not a proper basis on which to legislate, Walker notes, with a jerk of the thumb at Kennedy. This is major thinking. If this holds through the Supreme Courts, it's going to be a huge liberation for gays and lesbians as they stand before the law. It's hard to read Judge Walker's opinion without sensing that what really won out here was science, methodology, and hard work. Had the proponents of Prop 8 made even a minimal effort to put on a case, to track down real experts, to do more than try to assert their way to legal victory, this would have been a closer case. But faced with one team that mounted a serious effort and another team that did little more than fire up their big gay boogeyman screensaver for two straight weeks, it wasn't much of a fight. Judge Walker scolds them at the outset for promising in their trial brief to prove that same-sex marriage would affect some 23 harmful consequences and then putting on almost no case. Walker notes that the plaintiffs presented eight lay witnesses and nine expert witnesses, including historians, economists, psychologists, and a political scientist. Walker lays out their testimony in detail. Then he turns to the proponents' tactical decision to withdraw several of their witnesses, claiming extreme concern about their personal safety and unwillingness to testify if there were to be recording of any sort. What, the gay mafia is waiting for them outside? They're going to have a contract? What, Geffen is going to get, what, the, uh, the Hell's agents to come riding up to lasso them and drag them behind their motorcycles like that poor gay guy in Wyoming? I don't think so. Even when it was determined that there would be no recording, counsel declined to call them. Hmm, that's good. Uh, they were left with two trial witnesses, one of whom, David Blankenhorn, founder and president of the Institute for American Values, the judge found lacks the qualifications to offer opinion testimony and, in any event, failed to provide cogent testimony in support of proponents' factual assertions. In other words, he's a dingus and a dildo. And then Walker turned to his conclusions of law, finding that under both the due process and equal protection clauses, Proposition 8 fails to advance any rational basis in singling out gay men and lesbians for denial of a marriage license. Indeed, the evidence shows Proposition 8 does nothing more than enshrine in the California Constitution the notion that opposite-sex couples are superior to same-sex couples. Is that the end of it? Oh, no. Judge Walker is already being flayed alive for the breadth and boldness of his decision. The appeals road will be long and nasty. Walker has temporarily stayed the ruling pending uh, argument on a stay. And any way you look at it, this decision was written for a court of one, Kennedy, the man who has written most eloquently about dignity and freedom and the right to determine one's own humanity. The real triumph of Perry versus Schwarzenegger may be that it talks in the very loftiest terms about matters rooted in logic, science, money, social psychology, and fact. Well, the response to this has not been cool amongst the American public. A Talking Points memo, or at least parts of the American public, Talking Points memo here has put together the best of the worst responses. Here's the response to this overturning of eight by the chairman of the National Organization for Marriage. Here we have an openly gay, he says, according to the San Francisco Chronicle, federal judge substituting his views for those of the American people and of our founding fathers, who I promise you would be shocked by courts that imagine they have the right to put gay marriage in our Constitution. It's true. For all of my readings of Madison and Adams and Washington and Hamilton and Jefferson, I saw no debate, certainly in the Federalist Papers. There isn't Federalist Paper like 13 about gay marriage. 
marriage. No, no. Yes, they may have been shocked, probably. But $10 says the Founding Fathers would also be shocked by women wearing pants, a black man becoming president, and cable news. Okay, next. This is from the president of the American Family Association. Watch out for anything. Any group that takes on these kind of self-righteous titles, the American Family Association, the Association for the Defense of Everything That's Right Against Everything That's Wrong, etc., etc., Our Way of Life, Inc. All right, here's what the president of the American Family Association says. It's also extremely problematic that Judge Walker is a practicing homosexual himself. Still practicing, huh? He should have recused himself from this case because his judgment is clearly compromised by his own sexual proclivity. Wait a minute. Wouldn't a heterosexual have as many potential prejudices against gays as a gay might have, uh, you know, attraction towards the idea? There's a no win here. The fundamental issue here, says the president of the American Family Association, is whether homosexual conduct, with all its physical and psychological risks, what, it's more physically and psychologically dangerous to have homosexual sex than it is to have heterosexual sex? Please explain that these things should be promoted and endorsed by society. Bad, 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 says this man. That's why the people and elected officials accountable to the people should be setting marriage policy, not a black robe tyrant whose own lifestyle choices make it impossible to believe he could be impartial. His situation is no different than a judge who owns a porn studio being asked to rule on an anti-pornography statute. He'd have to recuse himself on conflict of interest grounds, and Judge Walker should have done that. So, the possibility that the judge is gay or not in judging a case about gay rights, really is equal to a judge who has a porn studio. None come to mind. There might be a couple. It's a it's a big bench, you know, big tent, big bench, that, or, that he should recuse himself under similar circumstances. These people are crazy. And here's the kicker. This comes from MSNBC. Luke Oderstad, 24, of Sacramento, outside the courthouse with his fiancée, Nadia Shakya, 22, wearing T-shirts that read, Bride and groom, I hope they had them on the appropriate chest, he said, I'm very upset. I don't feel like I live in America. Thank you, Selma. I just want to say that I've been really good to myself, and I'm really getting high on myself, and I really like what I'm doing. One, two, three, four. And a whoops, I got exploring. I walked the train yards, I stalked the highways. Late night statements, darling, amazement. You're gonna say that's on my way. I'm Nazi Gorin. Nobody's a woman, love to me. I'm continental, I'm never mental. I can't just whip, it's a tip. I'm a cat be gentle, you let the rain pour, what does it matter? I'm bigger and bolder, Charlie, I'm black, oh yeah, and I'm a whole lot fatter. I'm Nazi Gorin, how come I, nobody's a ballin' who owe me? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, folks, it's very hard to be a gorilla, but I gotta tell you something, Everybody's got a gorilla inside him. And uh, sooner or later, Charlie, you're gonna have to let him go. And when you do, he's uh, gonna walk. And when that gorilla walks, he's gonna walk a little something like this. In Indonesian, fried noodles are prison. But I'm a gorilla. Listen to reason Like all God's creatures I had my features Road stops I'd lots of lots and lots and lots of teachers Oh, poor Nazi Gorin I come and know nobody's a warning oh, Poor old me That's all, folks I'm here with uh, my co-host Phil Proctor And I have one for you, Phil I'm sure you, you're going to yeah. love this a New Jersey state appeals court ruled uh, to keep Adolf Hitler Campbell 
uh, Joyce Lynn Aryan Nation Campbell and Hoslin Hindler Jeannie Campbell away from their parents, Heath and Deborah Campbell. Mm-hmm. The family grabbed national headlines when a New Jersey bakery refused to decorate a birthday cake for Adolf. Oh. <laughs> Happy birthday, Adolf. Happy birthday, Adolf. Yeah, but the reason that they, they took their children away was because they're, they're Campbells. See, you, you don't realize that. The, the Campbells are much more uh, loathed than uh, Hitler ever was. Oh, inside the clan wars. Oh, good heavens. It was the Campbells. Who, there was all these clannish wars were raging across, you know, middle uh, to, to greatly evil uh, uh, Scotland at the time. So they decided to hold a great peace conclave, and they invited all of the heads of the warring clans to their, to their manse. And? And they served them soup as the first course of this dinner, and it was poisoned. And they killed all of the rival clan leaders. So that's why. That's what brought peace to Scotland. And that's why Campbell's soup is something <laughs> that, that you should avoid at all costs. There's too much salt or something in it. I'm head of the family. I can serve Campbell's soup. Yeah, but here's what's worse. My wife is a McDougal on her Scottish side, all right? And do they, you often find her on her Scottish side? I prefer her, actually. Yes, I do. I heard know. that's true. I, uh, I don't although know, you can be a little stingy sometimes. Yeah, you know? yeah. But anyway, uh, her one of her family ca- one of their family castles is in Oban, which is a great whiskey to, to sell early place. So we went to visit it. We learned that uh, it had been taken over by the Campbells, you know, and who, who were living there until just recently when uh, the, the tourists took it over and now it's a McDougal Castle again and there's, there's one lone surviving McDougal living there you know uh, heavily armed to keep the Campbells away and of course the, the ultimate blow is that my daughter Kristen married a Campbell yeah, yeah, that's right. She married a Campbell whose whose father is the premier of British Columbia, Gordon Campbell. And uh, so I did some research on the, the Campbell family uh, and told the story of the soup at the wedding uh, reception up there in, in well Vancouver. Received. Oh, very well received. And I also, I, I uh, checked out the, the Celtic origin of the word Campbell, the name Campbell. It comes from the Celtic Campbell, which means twisted mouth. So I said to the premier, I said, what, what a better profession for what, what other profession could a Campbell go into than politics, since you're basically speaking out of the other side of your mouth. Most well, of the time. well, you know, nothing like, you know, you serve me poison soup, you're going to see a twisted mouth. That's right. But, and, and tomorrow we'll talk about the McDonald's famous cattle rustlers in Scotland. Oh, poor Hamid Karzai. He's upset by the recent arrest of a key advisor accused of taking a bribe, and he's seeking to have more oversight over the work of a new anti-corruption task force. The move comes as a huge blow to U.S. efforts to fight corruption in Afghanistan, a stated top priority of General David Petraeus, said a senior U.S. official. Yeah, I bet it does. Mohammed Karzai just doesn't like to have all that corruption, which basically he eats for breakfast, being investigated by anybody but by himself and his brother when he's not too busy running hundreds of tons of opium all over the world. Mohammed Zia Salehi, the head of administration for the Afghan National Security Council, was arrested last week and accused of accepting a car in exchange for his help in seeking the release of a suspect detained in another corruption case, said Fazel Ahmed Fakir, first deputy attorney general. So this is what's got, you know, Karzai's, uh, you know, panties in such a twist. He said the attorney general's office has wiretaps of Salehi discussing the vehicle. He tried to use his influence in different departments to free that guy any way possible, Fakir said. Karzai gathered his top law enforcement and justice officials at the presidential palace to hear from a delegation he asked to monitor the work of the major crimes task force. U.S. and British law enforcement officers serve as advisors to the task force, which was set up to battle graft and corruption that has become endemic in Afghan society. Basically, what he wants is he wants it to stop. And the way he's going to do it is all the cases which are being investigated and those cases that have been completed should be reviewed by the delegation and the outcome of its assessment should be reported to Karzai's office, the statement said. All the activities, arresting, investigation, questioning, and detention should be based on the principles and laws of the country and respect human rights. No, not, not human rights. Karzai's rights. He basically doesn't want to look at the rest of the world through bars. And now, Radio Free Odd presents a poem 
by author Forgotten. Just a line to say I'm living, that I'm not among the dead, though I'm getting more forgetful and mixed up in my head. I got used to my arthritis, to my dentures. <laughs> I'm resigned. I can manage my bifocals, but God, I miss my mind. For sometimes I can't remember when I stand at the foot of the stair if I must go up for something or... Have I just come down from there? And before the fridge, so often my poor mind is filled with doubt. Have I just put food away, or have I come to take some out? And there are times when it is dark with my nightcap on my head. I don't know if I'm retiring or just getting out of bed. So, if it's my turn to write you, there's no need for getting sore. I may think that I've written and don't want to be a bore. So remember that I love you. And I wish that you were near. But now it's nearly mail time, so must say goodbye, my dear. There I stand before the mailbox with a face so very red. Instead of mailing you this letter, I have opened it instead. Well, every day the days are getting shorter up here in the Northern Hemisphere. I mention that because, of course, this is Internet radio and people could be listening Anywhere, at any time, simultaneously. So it's get every day gets shorter, but our show doesn't get shorter, but like the day it ends. So here in the sunset of our show is the Touch of Tang. Touch of Tang. This one's by Tu Fu. Tu Fu. Tu Fu for you, baby. New moon. Mm-hmm. Such a thin moon in its first quarter. A slanting shadow, a partly finished ring, barely risen over the ancient fort hanging at the edge of the evening clouds. The Milky Way hasn't changed color. The mountain passes are cold and empty. There's white dew in the front courtyard, secretly filling the drenched carnations. Oh, man, give me a bouquet of them drenched carnations. Radio Free Oz, the Oz team, does it all for you. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, David Osman, our co-host, Bill McIntyre, our producer, Dave Maloney, our engineer, Chaz Glass does the numbers, Tom Gedwillow keeps it all up on our new, deep, sophisticated website, John Cumming does the ones and zeros when we ask him, Scott Wilde, he's into social media, and Phil Fountain, he's the chairman of the Oz Design Group, that's why it's so stylish, baby. See you anon.